0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. It's great to be here. Uh, it's, it's my privilege to, uh, to to do what I love. Honestly, uh, for a number of years, I was a I was in the academy as a professor uh, for a number of years. I was a truck driver. Uh, you. You're probably wondering how that transition happened. Uh, I wrote a book about that. Uh, but uh, then, then by God's grace, uh, an organization called 1517 started asking me to teach and to, and to speak and to podcast with them. And that was part-time for a while. And then they offered me a full-time position. So basically like saying, you know, you know what you're trained to do, what you love to do, what you'd rather do more than anything else? How about we pay you to do that full-time? like let me think about that yes yes so I've been doing that for um, a couple of years now and it's just a great privilege uh, some of you might know me from 40 minutes in the Old Testament the podcast uh, so I do that been doing that for seven years it's my job security because we're only in first kings and we've been doing it for seven years so <laughs> I'm 51 I figure I can stretch this another 14 years good to go uh, so we, uh, we've been working our way from Genesis 1 through, through 1 Kings, about halfway through 1 Kings, and just loving every minute of it. I've learned a lot, and hopefully those of you who listen have learned a lot as well. So this morning, uh, of all the things that, that I could talk about, I was kind of going through the list when they asked me to teach, and I thought, well, let's, let's do this. We're gonna talk about walking backward, walking backward to Bethlehem. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, think about the way that we think of the past and the future. Typically, we think of the future as behind us or in front of us? In front of us, right? We even talk about facing the future. You need to face the future because that is the way that we ordinarily think about walking forward. We're looking at what is what is to come. That's exactly backwards from the biblical perspective, at least the Hebrew perspective. The Hebrew word that means in front of, which also means east, also means past, So what is in front of you is not the future. What is in front of you is the past. And the word for behind you also means that which is to come, the future. And If you stop for just a few seconds and think about that, it makes perfect sense. What have you already seen? The past. So the past is right in front of you. You can look at it. I know what I did yesterday. I know what I did last year. I knew what I did 20 years ago. It might be a vague memory, but I can still kind of see it in my mind's eye. I'm looking at it. I'm facing it. I'm facing the past. What's going to happen tomorrow? My goodness, what's going to happen 30 minutes from now? (laughs) No idea. It's unseen. I can't see it because it's behind me. You get it. We can see the past. We can't see the future. So we face the past. And as we're walking into the future, we're walking, as it were, backwards. You might be saying, well, that's pretty cool. So what? (laughs) Well, so what is this? If you're a Hebrew, if you're an Israelite, and you're thinking about what is to come, you see what is to come based upon what has already happened. So the past is the picture of the future. It might be an incomplete picture. It might just kind of be a hint of what is to come but it's the past that is pregnant with the future. The past is going to shape what is to come. So as you're walking backward through the biblical narrative, beginning at Genesis one, and then working your way slowly forward, but backward, what you're seeing unfold before you is a picture of what is to come. The story is as it were being written or being painted, we might say in just black and white sketches, And then what you're waiting for is the full coloring that's going to come in the Messiah. So as we walk backward, specifically to Bethlehem, what are we looking for? We're looking for all of these pencil sketches, all of these drawings from the past that are a dim revelation of what is to come ultimately in Bethlehem in the incarnation of our Lord. So what I'm talking about as we walk backward to Bethlehem, are all of these suggestions, no, that's too weak of a word, all of these indications that eventually, in time to come, our Lord is not only going to simply pay a visit to His people, you know, stop in for a little meal with Abraham, walk in the garden with with Adam and Eve, appear to Moses in the burning bush. He's not going to just like stop in for a minute. He's actually going to take up His residence, on earth, in flesh and blood, as one of us. So as one author likes to put it, Christ was trying on the clothes of his incarnation in the Old Testament. Now this is, a, this is a remarkable truth because it means that when we are walking backward to Bethlehem and we bump up against the manger and look down and see the infant God, the Son of God who's become one of us, we can kind of scanning the vista of the past that is before us say, ah, I see now all of this was foretold to us in various kinds of ways. And we're now looking at the fulfillment of that in God made flesh, the word made flesh who's come to tabernacle among us. So in a way, already in the beginning of the Bible, you begin to hear the Christmas bells, You just hear them for a long time before Christmas actually arrives and this is meaningful for us as Christians not only in our own understanding of the scriptures and of the faith but even as we dialogue with other people whether they are people who have no connection to the church or maybe they are Jewish believers or Muslim believers and we're we're trying to communicate exactly what do we what do we understand about who Jesus is we might say he's the son of God Okay, but is he more than that? Well, yes, he is. He's actually a human being. What does he, They might say, "Well, does does is there any indication that this was going to take place?" And Christians will sometimes ask this too: Like, is there was the incarnation a shock? Was it a surprise? Is there somehow we could have seen this coming? And with the understanding of the Old Testament, that yes, yes, we do have all of these indicate indications that that this was going to take place. We can affirm absolutely, yeah. We knew that this was coming. It wasn't just prophesied, in other words. It wasn't just like Isaiah said, the virgin is gonna conceive and bear, bear a son, you shall call his name Emmanuel. It wasn't just prophecy. This was, this was laid out in all of these appearances of the Son of God in the Old Testament, in human form, as a way to keep tapping us on the shoulder saying, hey, I'm coming. The time is coming. And it's not gonna be temporary, it's gonna be permanent when I become one of you. So we've got 20 minutes. So let's let's look at some examples of this. We could spend a long time uh, looking at all of these, but I want to at least highlight some of these. And as we begin to, what I want you to think about is that the God that we meet in the Old Testament is not a simplistic Unitarian monotheistic being. There is a diversity within God. There's a, di- a distinction within the Godhead, sometimes called complex monotheism. <laughs> we, we Christians would call this the Trinity. <laughs> but scholars like to call it complex monotheism. And we're like, yeah, we know the Nicene Creed. We, we know how this works. But that's a, that's a language that they use. And it, it does fit. There, there is a, a monotheistic confession. Shema, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, There is God is is one, and yet immediately in the Bible, even in the first two verses, we meet a complexity within the Godhead. Betashit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. All right, so we hear God created, but then you get to the verse two, the second verse, and all of a sudden we're introduced to the Spirit of God. So right away we're like, okay, there's God and and His Spirit. You don't get very far before you realize there's even more complexity. And part of this complexity is that when God wants to talk to his people, very often what he will do is he will send a representative, a messenger who not only bears his authority, but actually bears his name, speaks as God, acts as God, is addressed as God, and yet is sent by God to to relay the message. Now, the greatest example of this, the clearest example of this, is in Exodus chapter 3. So if you, if you have your Bibles, you can open up there. Or if you have your digital Bibles, whatever you want to do, or if you just want to listen, that's fine too. But Exodus chapter 3, this is the famous scene of the burning bush, which at least a few of you have been very close to because you climbed up, climbed up Mount Sinai to, uh, to where this happened. This is when Moses has been, for the last 40 years basically, Uh, living with his his father-in-law, working for his father-in-law. He's a shepherd of sheep. And one day, verse 1 of chapter 3, he's pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He takes the flock to a place that is called Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb is also called Sinai. Same place, two names. The angel, now listen to this. This is verse 2. And I'll read you the English and then I'll correct it. And the, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. So I, I would ask you any time that you are that you hear the word angel in the Bible to immediately do a, a translation for me, okay? Because the the Hebrew here is malach, and malach does not mean angel; it means messenger. It just happens to be translated most of the time as angel or maybe paraphrase, we might say as angel, but a Moloch is a messenger. So a Moloch can be a human messenger. So I need to get a message from from here to there. So I'm going to send a Moloch. I'm going to send a messenger to relay that. Uh, So sometimes angels are messengers. They're Molochim. And there's also a very special messenger who is called God, who acts as God, who speaks as God with, with full divine authority. And that's who we're meeting here. And he's usually called the messenger of Yahweh which is typically translated by your Bibles as the angel of the Lord. He's the messenger of Yahweh. So the messenger of Yahweh appeared to Moses in this burning bush. Moses checks it out. Of course he's going to check it out. I mean, if I ever see a burning bush, I probably should walk away because I know what's coming, but but I will check it out. So Moses gets close. I'm going to check out why this bush isn't burned up. And when the Lord saw him, then he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush. This gets very confusing. The angel of the Lord, the messenger of Yahweh is in the bush. Now God is calling to him from the bush. And he says, Moses, Moses, and Moses says, here I am. And he says, don't come near remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He also said, I am the God of your father the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And notice the very next verse and the Lord that is Yahweh said, I've seen the affliction of my people. Now, this seems like we can't figure out who's who, right? When you're just kind of reading through this. So we are told there's a messenger of the bush, but then all of a sudden we're told the messenger is God. And the next thing we know, it says the Lord is the one who's speaking. So we're like, is, this, is, this is kind of confusing. Who's who here? It's, it's purposely a little bit confusing because what is communicated to us is that the one who's in the bush is both God and Lord, and yet at the same time sent by, the, by God and the Lord. Now The way that we can understand this is through basically the Nicene Creed. This is the father sending the Son, and the Son is of one essence with the Father, and so the Son is called God, and the Father is called God, and it's the Father who sends the Son. This is nothing more than the Father sending his Son as his messenger to speak to Moses. This this is exactly what the Son is doing here is the same thing that he's going to do much later at the Sea of Galilee. He's going to call some fishermen. He's going to say, hey, i got a mission for you guys. Here's what I want you to do. Here the son is coming to Moses and saying, hey, I got a mission for you. Here's what I want you to do. So there, this is the Old Testament's way of talking about the Trinity. There is one God, and yet there is this distinction, this diversity within God. And this is one of the examples of this. And there's multiple of these. We're not going to be able to look at all of them. But think back to when the very first time the messenger of the Lord appears. It's in Genesis chapter 16. It's when Hagar has run away. She's in the wilderness and the messenger of Yahweh appears to her there. And do you, anyone remember what she ends up calling that messenger? She, but she, by the way, this pregnant woman on the run is the only one in the Old Testament who names God. Pretty amazing. Anyone remember what she names him? The God who sees, right? but you got to tell me the Hebrew for it. El Roy. El Roy, there you go. Yeah. El Roy, which means the, the seeing God. Hagar says, here I am in dire straits about to die in, in middle of the wilderness, running away from my mistress uh, because she got the bright idea of, of letting her husband get me pregnant. And I'm, I'm in a terrible situation. And who sees me? God. So I'm going to name him El Roy. But she names the God who appeared to her and spoke to her, El Roy. Well, who appeared to her and spoke to her? The messenger of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. There he is understood to be and confessed to be God. Now, if you're still open to Exodus, we're going to look at one more, one more verse. It's just a, chap, a couple chapters over, Exodus 23, verse 20. This is God speaking to the people of Israel through Moses. And he says, here's what I'm going to do. You have a long way to go. You're at Mount Sinai. You're going to be there for a while. You're going to camp there and you get, you get the 10 commandments, you get the tabernacle, so on and so forth. Eventually you're going to leave and where's your destination. Yeah. You're going to the promised land. You're going to the the land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to Birmingham (laughs) or Israel or whatever it is. So you need some help. You need a guide along the way. Well, I've got the perfect the perfect guide for you so this is exodus 23 20. god says look or behold behold i'm going to send a messenger before you now again your translation is going to say angel it's moloch it's messenger i'm gonna send a messenger before you to guard you along the way he's going to bring you to the place that i have prepared be on your guard before him and obey his voice don't rebel against him for he will not pardon your transgressions in other words this messenger I'm going to send, he has the power of absolution. He's got the power of the keys. So don't be rebellious toward him. And then here's the most important phrase in this section. Since my name is in him, God's name is in this messenger. Now in the Old Testament, basically in biblical understanding of names is these aren't just little things that you put on people. These aren't just, you know, sticker with your, with your name. Your name is identical with who you are. It's basically your, your essence. So to have access to someone's name is to have access to, to who they are, especially God. So for God to say, my name is in this messenger, he could not have said it any clearer when he, when he's, when he says this and to communicate that who I am is in him. My power, my authority, my essence is in this messenger. So he's going to be the one who guides you. He's going to take you there. Don't rebel against him because he is the one who is my representative. Well, who is this? Well, this is none other than his son. Once more, the same messenger that we find in other places. So you could, you could look at many other instances. We're not going to have time to do that. Uh, but all of these messenger of the Lord traditions are one way. And I want to emphasize that one way in which the Old Testament communicates to us this complex monotheism, this Trinitarian theology that God is not just a unitary being, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, how else does this take place? What are are some other ways in which we have the Son of God described to us in the past so that when we're walking backward to Bethlehem, we begin to see Him appearing in these sorts of ways to us? Well, one of my favorites is not in the book that most people would turn to if they want to talk about the Son of God, and that is the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is typically used as just kind of a, what? It's a repository of wisdom. Yeah, good good advice. You know, here's what you should do if you want to have a flourishing life. And there's plenty of that in Proverbs. But one of the things to keep in mind about Proverbs, you mentioned wisdom. Wisdom is all in there. Wisdom is not an abstract principle in the book of Proverbs. When we talk about wisdom today, we're thinking abstractly. He has wisdom, she has wisdom, meaning they're, you know, they, they got things figured out. They're smart. They make good decisions. Well, that certainly is not untrue, but by and large, when the Old Testament talks about wisdom, especially in this wisdom literature like Proverbs, wisdom is often personified, understood to be a person. So if you Are looking in your Bible, turn to the eighth chapter of Proverbs. And this is part of a long soliloquy, this speech by wisdom. And wisdom is describing the beginning. Here's here's what was happening at creation. God was creating. He was making this. He was making mountains and, and seas and rivers and trees and all these wonderful things. And wisdom says, when all this was going, when all this was going on, guess where I was? Right there with him. So this is Proverbs 8, 22. The Lord, so this is wisdom speaking. The Lord possessed me. That that verb in Hebrew, kanak, can also be translated, begot me, brought me forth. In fact, it's the same word that at the men's retreat, we're looking at Genesis chapter four, Cain and Abel, and Eve says, "I have gotten a man." And when she says "gotten," she uses kana, meaning "I begot," "I brought forth," this child, and so she names him Cain, which is Cain. So begot Cain. So here it says, "The Lord kana, He begot me, He brought me forth." The be- and your again, your translation is probably gonna say something like at the beginning of his way. Literally in Hebrew, it's the Lord brought me forth, begot me, the beginning of his way. I'm the beginning of his way. He brought me forth. Before his works of old, from everlasting I was established from the beginning from the earliest times of the earth. And he, Wisdom goes on to say, you know, before there were no depths, when there were no springs, before there were mountains, I was there. In other words, before there was any other created thing, I was there. I, wisdom, was there with the Father while all this was going on. And then you skip down to verse 30, I was beside him as a master workman. You could also describe this as, a, as like an architect. I like to think of wisdom is, is there as kind of you know, project of, manager of creation, making sure that everything is going down just like it needs to happen. Daily his delight, rejoicing before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight, wisdom says, in the children of men. So not only is wisdom there at the beginning, as the architect, the the, the project manager of creation, but also delighting, loving the fact that all of this is being made and most especially that people are being made. So wisdom is personified, and wisdom here fits with all the other ways in which the Son of God is described in the Old Testament. This was picked up by writers, by Jewish writers, in the couple of centuries leading up to the first century, where they too personified wisdom and talked about how wisdom was with Israel. God had sent wisdom to Israel. In fact, so you know John 1.14, this is the verse that you even if you've never tried to memorize it, you probably haven't memorized the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what's the Greek word for dwelt literally tabernacle word became flesh and tabernacled among us. John is borrowing that language from a book called Ecclesiasticus, which is part of the Apocrypha also known as the wisdom of Jesus. Ben Sirach Ecclesiasticus when it talks about wisdom, says that wisdom, and again, wisdom is personified in Ecclesiastes. Jesus Ben Sirach, says that wisdom was looking for a place to dwell, to pitch its tent. And it went here, it went there, and it finally pitched its tent tabernacled in Israel. So what John does in chapter 1 is he's writing to his fellow Jews, and you can just kind of see John thinking to himself, in fact, I believe that uh, the chosen... Kind of gives us a little glimpse into, into John. He's trying to think of how to how to write all this down. And you can kind of picture John thinking, I really want to be able to communicate as best I can who the Son of God is and how can I do that? And so one of the ways that he does this is by drawing upon these well-known wisdom traditions, where wisdom tabernacles among the people of Israel. Except John doesn't say wisdom did. He chooses another category. He chooses the word, the logos. And so he says, The Logos, he could just as well have said wisdom, but the Logos became flesh. Wisdom became flesh and pitched his tent among us, tabernacled among us. This is John's way of speaking to his fellow Jews and, of course, us till today in language that they are familiar with. He's saying, John is saying, you know, you you guys know Proverbs. You know the wisdom literature. It talks all about wisdom. You also know In fact, it was the Old Testament reading today. If you've been in church, the reading was with Genesis 15. Talked about the word of the Lord appearing to Abraham in Greek. The equivalent of the word of the Lord, the Devar Yahweh in Hebrew would have been the logos. The word of the Lord appears to Abraham and he brings him outside. This is a this is a visible word to Abraham and brings him outside. So you got word traditions in the Old Testament, wisdom traditions in the Old Testament. And John is combining these to say, let me tell you about that word. Let me tell you about that wisdom of God. It was in the beginning with God. All things were created by God through this word. And this word now has become one of us. Has taken on flesh and is tabernacle among us. And do I have till 10 till? Is that correct? Or no. Longer. Or longer. <laughs> I might get in trouble. I'm going to have a word or two with Eric. I don't know if he's here, but... Uh, he stole at least two minutes of my presentation time. So, <laughs> so you, you've, got, you've got messenger traditions in the Old Testament. You've got these word traditions like in Genesis 15. Then you have wisdom as well. And then there are, there are times when the, the second person of the Trinity is called the power of God or the glory of God. There's all sorts of different ways in which there is this distinction within God. In which the second person the son of the father is described to us now what i love are those instances where he actually appears as a human being temporarily taking on human form and if you want to look at a fun one go to the book of judges it's when the messenger appears to the parents of samson and they have no idea who they're talking to He first appears to the mom, and then the mom runs back and gets her, her husband, and they go out, and eventually they have about two or three encounters with him. And until the very end, they think that they're talking with another guy. He is so human. It's like he's just Joe Israelite, who shows up with this great message for them. And it's only afterward that they realize who they have been talking to. They've been talking to the messenger of the Lord, they've I been mean, talking really to the son of the father. Who appeared to them in so ordinary a fashion that he probably looked a whole lot like a guy who walked along the Sea of Galilee and called some fishermen. This is the Son in the Old Testament taking on temporarily that human form that he would permanently, everlastingly assume in his incarnation. So as you walk through the Old Testament, really everything from the creation of humanity onward you begin to see the various ways in which we have these pencil sketches of the incarnation to come. So that by the time you get to the end and you get to Bethlehem and you you bump against that manger and you look down, you're like, that's the one. That's the word. That's the wisdom. That's the glory. That's the messenger who is no longer going to be temporarily like us, but now he's become one of us with flesh and blood and bones and a brain and a heart. So that, from the moment of His incarnation onward, we know that God is man and man is God. He's one of us. He truly is Emmanuel. So thank God for all those Old Testament appearances that ready us for, for Christmas. And thank God that our Lord is one of us. And I thank God for all of you for this chance to be here, to spend the weekend with, with you. Uh, just feels like I'm